Thank you. That is, uh, that is so kind, Pastor Ted, one of my favorite people on the planet, and uh, certainly this church, one of my favorite churches on the planet as well. Hey, this is pretty exciting, huh? Look at this. I mean, this is, this is I, I, I was in the birthing suite when Harvest Branton, now Mississauga, uh, was born, and it wasn't like this, all right? That's, uh, that's pretty exciting, and um, we are thrilled in Oakville be able to be a part of this in a small way, but to be in a real way as well. And look how many of y'all there are of you too. That's, that's also a big deal. God is at work, isn't he, church? Amen, 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 amen. It's so great. Amen. Love that. That. It, now you're technically in Mississauga, right? Well, I was born and raised in Mississauga, all right? And my wife, Jill, she's also born and raised in Mississauga, so the Sogstein. So we're excited, and uh, the Lord needs to work here so well, so Brampton, Mississauga, and everywhere in between, so we're thrilled with that too, and so we just celebrate with you, and I'm really here today, I believe, I really prayed about, and uh, delivering a message which I think is so obviously pertinent and relevant for where you are two months into this thing, two months and a day or something like that since you kind of officially uh, we're here, and so really want to be encouraging that way as well. So I'm just going to pray right now, ask the Lord to do what he can, because i got nothing so um, let's do that. Father, uh, just uh, taking a moment right now, uh, loving to be a little before you, and just to say, God, we need you to work right now. Would you please, please, Lord, would you encourage your people? Uh, we pray right now just even for the church as a whole and all that's happened with Harvest Brampton, now Mississauga, and all that will be. God, just think of the vision of the, uh, just driving up this morning, all these houses, thousands and thousands of homes, and right now we're containing so many of them, people sleeping in and who are dead to Jesus Christ. By your grace, Lord, would they be awakened to the power and the resurrection of the Lord? Would you use this ministry, this church, this community of believers to witness, to bless, that we would see more and more people walk through these doors and begin life in Jesus Christ, Lord, receiving the inheritance of Jesus never to die, Lord, uh, saved from death and hell in the grasp of Satan. May that be so. That's why we're here. This nation needs it so much. They need you. So help us now, even this time, Lord, this, this, this passage from your word, use it to bless and encourage, again, as only you can. Just, Father, please would you do that. Help your weak servant now as he begins to explain and exhort us in what you say. We pray this in Jesus' name. If you agree, you can say Amen, amen. Thanks for that. Okay, we're going to open our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah 66. If you need a Bible, we have ushers in the aisles. You can put your hand up nice and high, and they will get you a Bible, because I really want you to look at what we're doing today. Good, thanks for those hands. Hold them up nice and high until you get them, and they will uh, deliver a Bible to you again. We're in Isaiah chapter 66. You can go to the table of contents if you need to find that book. Isaiah is pretty much in the middle of the Bible. Hit Psalms, turn right, and you will find your way there. Isaiah chapter 66, and let me just start by saying this today, and I love this, I'm not here to impress you. Yay, I'm so glad for that. Not here to impress you, but listen, by the help of the Holy Spirit, I am here to convince you. To convince you that as we pray to see God do amazing things and incredible things, here's what's so important, okay? If we want to see the Lord work, and as we have seen him work, there's a direction we must go. But there are also places we must never leave. Now, in God's economy and in God's wisdom, both things can be true. There's a direction we must go in the pursuit of Christ, but at the same time, there are certain places that we must never leave. Okay? 
Harvest Mississauga. It's hard for me to even begin to say Mississauga now because I just am so your identity's been Brampton all the way through, right? Anyone else struggling with that a little bit? Good, not just me, okay? But it's so great, Harvest Mississauga, which is so exciting. The reason you're here right now, I mean, I watched this happen from the very, very beginning. Like from the very, I was there probably, again, before most of you were here. And you watched this church be birthed. There's a reason you're here now. There's a direction and a place you have rested in which God promises he will bless. There are things that God says, I work in this church, I work in this type of people. That is what has gotten you here. It hasn't been your cleverness. It hasn't been because you're all so attractive, because you are, okay? It hasn't been because now you got some church building. It hasn't been because you have really gifted pastors and leaders, which you do. It's been because there's been a dependence and an acknowledgement that God can do only what God can do and we cannot. We rely on him, we depend on him, we love him, and we are asking him to do this within us. I am here today to exhort you and remind you of that which got you here and to continue along that path in the same vein according to the will of God. Why is that true? Because there's a biblical vision that never gets old. There's a song that the Holy Spirit never tires of delighting in. There are convictions that God guarantees to bless. Listen, there are certain metaphorical wells that never run dry. Artesian wells, fresh, life-giving wells of living water. You can go back to them again and again and again. They will never run out. They will never run dry. Because God says, I promise to supply my church with such living water if they continue to draw from the right places and continue to draw from me. Now this is straightforward in one sense, but it is not easy. It is not easy to keep going to the wells that never run dry for a couple of reasons. A couple of reasons is because, listen, our flesh wants to compromise. Our flesh wants to get distracted by the things of this world. Our flesh loves it when it becomes about us and not so much about the Lord. And furthermore, if you're really going to go for Christ, it's going to be hard. Amen? Like, life in Christ is not easier. If you want the easy path, man, go follow the world. If you want the narrow path, Jesus' words, the hard path, Jesus' words, then go for Christ. Listen, it's harder, but we always say this where I'm from, it's harder, but so much better. But listen, it's going to be challenging. You have to know that. Think of all the promises Christ makes, man. Hard, narrow, persecuted, hated by all, take up your cross, you must become less, die to self. Sign me up, please, that sounds great. It is great, but it takes faith. And we're here today to say, listen, this path of drinking from the Lord, again, tough, but so, so good. Every day then becomes a fight for the heart. Every day then is a battle for our affections. Every day is a fight for truth. That's why the foundation must be set. The foundation must be strong. Take a look at this screen here. I want to show you a picture of the tallest building in the world. It's in Dubai. It's called the Burj Khalifa. Maybe some of you have seen this up close. Maybe some of you have been there. Some of you have studied this as well. The tallest building in the world. Let me get this right. There's 160 floors. Imagine that elevator. Wow. Okay. Um, Over 800 meters tall. Think about that. 80% of a kilometer. Are you kidding me? 
Um, fastest elevator in the world. It gets how fast it goes. 65 kilometers an hour. So you start going up and you sink down to the bottom. And you go down and you hit your head on the ceiling type of thing. You know how fast it is. It has the highest swimming pool in the world on the 76th floor. Why the 76th? I have no idea. All right? But the 76th floor. But listen. You can look at this building and as grand as it is above the ground. The only reason it stands is because what's underneath. It took one one year of engineering and hard labor digging to build the foundation of this building. Over 110,000 tons of concrete with a year, as I said, a year of establishing the foundation before anything above the ground could start to be built. The only reason this building is strong and stands is because of what you cannot see. The only reason your life and mine, your church and mine, the only way we will see the Lord do what we want him to do is if our foundation remains firm and strong and does not change. I'm telling you, love, when you come in this building and you just, even the good distractions of all the different things that need to, you will come in here and you will be tempted like I have and where I am and I minister to be distracted by what is good. That's, that, that's so much of our lives, eh? I mean, let's just break it down in, 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 into our homes for a second, into our personal lives. I and mean, there's always another text message. I get a text, I get a text. Don't, don't check right now, okay? Turn your phone off. That's really good, all right? There's always another TV show. There's always another internet site. There's always another conversation to have. There's always another thing. to always another hobby to pursue. Always another exercise you want to take part of. Always, there's always something around there. There's always something else in this world. Nothing replaces Jesus Christ. And he is the foundation 1 Corinthians 3 says, there's no other foundation that can be laid than him. He is the lasting. He is the perfection. He is the beauty. So what Isaiah 66 does for us today, it succinctly and powerfully communicates these truths of the foundation of whom God looks to and who he is. Isaiah 66 verse 1. Take a look here. Just, Just two verses today. God help us and God teach us. Thus says the Lord. That's a good time to listen. The Lord says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. So all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But, notice the contrast, notice the the significance here. But this is the one to whom I will look. He was humble, contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. What we get from this text here today, loved ones, two critical convictions that we're going to pull from this text to describe two massive points. Okay, conviction number one is this. Conviction number one is there is only one God. There's only one God. Some of you were like, Rob, you came uh, here today, this weekend, to tell us that? I said, yes, I told you I'm not not here to impress you, but I am here to convince you. Convince you of this everlasting truth again, verse one. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Notice, what is the house you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? I believe one of the great insights that we take from verse 1 is this. Let us never think we can put God in a box. Literally in this case, see that? What is the house you will build for me, he says. Listen, our God will not and cannot be contained. Just consider, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house you will build for me? What's happening here? In verse 1, this is not a call for the rejection of buildings. God is not out in this building itself, but this building is only a tool. 
God is not calling for the ejection of buildings, but God is calling for the elevation of himself, for the elevation of the Almighty. Now, why is this so important? Because in the context of the book of Isaiah, the central problem, if you know the book of Isaiah, and the reason that this chapter ends the way it does, the final chapter in Isaiah, the central problem identified with the human race in Isaiah is the pursuit and obsession of self-exaltation. The greatest problem with man is man is so arrogant and continues to prop himself or herself up and even attempts to usurp God. What does that make man as they try to usurp the authority of God? It makes man stupid, okay? You want to make some notes today? Write that down. Humankind in itself is foolish, is dumb. We think we're so that that we ignore and reject the living God in the attempt to prop ourselves up and to replace God with ourselves. Of course, that will never work out well. There is only one God, and I hate to break it to you, but we're not him. There's only one God, and we're not him. But we are called, and this is the amazing part is, when we see our role to exalt God and adore God and serve God, that's where our greatest satisfaction begins to be found. And look at, look at verse 2 now. God says, all these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. I love that. I love the maker of the heavens and the earth is talking now. Here's his resume. All these things my hand has made. The sovereign king, the Lord of glory, the holy one, the great I am. The God who decides when nations rise and when nations fall. The God who reigns over the salvation of all. Our God, the omnipotent one, the omniscient one, the one who will soon establish the new heavens and the new earth. This awesome and almighty king, he says, listen, he says in verses 1 and 2, he says, will you bring me a few stones for a temple as a gift, really? Are you going to bring me some wood and build a house and somehow think that that's going to be a gift to me? Some stones and some wood? He's like, all these things my hand is made. All these things came to be. I'm the, I'm the owner of a count of a thousand hills. Every single aspect of creation, God says, I have made. And you're going to bring to me a gift of a few rocks and wood? Really? Really? God's not interested in that. See what's happening here? The elevation of the Almighty. We see who he is. And we see who we are not. I love what John Piper said. Maybe you've had a chance to see some pictures or even be there, but... John Piper says in relation to the Grand Canyon, I've been, by God's grace, been able to go there and stand on the edge of it. And he says this, no one goes to the Grand Canyon to improve their self-esteem. Think about that. Isn't that so good? You don't walk up to the edge of the Grand Canyon and look upon this, this mass and this utter beauty. You don't look at it and you go, well, hey, look at me, I'm amazing. Everyone, I'm amazing. No, no. You look and you're like, and you get so small. As the creator gets so massive. This is happening here. You're going to bring me some rocks? You're going to bring me some wood? All these things my hand has made. I was there from the beginning. I created everything. He's like, I'm not interested in that. You see the profound wisdom that God is handing down here? You can't limit God. Don't ever limit God to one work, one location, one strategy, one methodology. God's not forced into the plans of man. God's like, I am God. I will do whatever I want. I'm the creator of all things. He's looking for hearts that love him and worship him. It's interesting because in this context, when you're reading scripture, context is king. 
In this context, we see here the religious legalism or the ritualism of trying to please God. Maybe you're like that. Maybe you have, you have this false religion that grows in your heart sometimes where you, if, I, if I just do this more, if I can just kind of achieve this, then God will pat me on the back and like me more. Notice in verse 3 here, notice what God says. It's a big rebuke. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. See, when the heart of God's people is wrong and stale and cold, when their religion is just a form of ritualism or legalism, he's like, when you slaughter an ox, you might as well just kill someone. That's how I view it, God says. He goes on. He who sacrifices a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. God's like, when your heart is so far from me and you're offering sacrifices, just go break a dog's neck. That's the equivalent. It gets worse. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood blasphemous to the Lord. Watch this. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. See what God's saying here? He's like, listen, listen. If you're going to approach me with some, again, man-contrived religious effort, you might as well worship an idol. That's how far from authentic this worship is. What is God saying then? God says this. He says, this is what I'm looking for my people. I want my people to understand who I am. And I want my people to understand who I, what I want or who I want. And what does God want? He wants our hearts. Why? Because when he has your heart, loved ones, he has your everything. Think about that. He has your everything. The single greatest commandment in the universe is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. All synonyms for a passionate pursuit of the Lord. The greatest thing God wants from you and I when it comes down to it, the greatest thing God wants from this church right now is your love is worship because when he has our worship and when he has our hearts he has our everything see what, what what's happening right now i'm not coming up with a new message that's the point trumpeting an old call the call that's always been the call that promises to unleash power upon our lives why is this so important it's so important because the distractions are so many um, the new calls all around us are in abundance and we find ourselves again in the time where, listen again, the good can so easily become the enemy of what is best. This is why we must be so aware and so ready. Our view of God determines so much. I hesitate to share this quote because it's long. The first part I'm just going to read and the second part we'll put up on the screen for you, okay? But this is written by A.W. Tozer. I'm going to pray as we're good students of God's word. I pray you're going to be able to pay attention and listen. If you can take in what's being said, it's so profound. Tozer, one of my favorite authors, he wrote this about 65 years ago. Okay, Here's what he said on the loss of our view of the majesty of God. He said this. The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted for one so low, so ignoble as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. This she has done not deliberately, but little by little. That's very true. Through our society the last several decades. Little by little and without her knowledge and her very unawareness only makes her situation all the more tragic. Here's an important sentence. The low view of God, the low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. See you saying there? When you lose the fear of the Lord, you lose so much. Why? Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of... Wisdom, right? So think about that. When the church fails to feel their Lord, then what you also forfeit is the wisdom of God. 
If you forfeit the wisdom of God, you're left with the wisdom of man. And when you're left with the wisdom of man, that's not going to go great. Right there is describing so much of why the church is floundering across our nation right now. There's a compromise happening and a temptation to fear man and not God in the midst of our culture. And the moment we push God to the side, we're left with ourselves. No wonder there's no power. No wonder there's no true joy. No wonder there's no significant progress and movement in terms of so many other places. Because when the fear of God is left, it begins to filter in a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. He says, a whole new philosophy of the Christian life has resulted from this one basic error in our religious thinking. With our loss of the sense of majesty has come further loss of religious awe and consciousness of the divine presence. We have lost our spirit of worship and our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet God in adoring silence. That, that is so... See, when you lose the fear of God, you're just like phone, 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 busy, busy, this, this, text, text, three here, Facebook, Facebook, you know, move, move, this, this. So you can't even stay still anymore. Ever feel that in your heart? When you're, just, you're, just, you're, you're, you're addicted to being entertained. That's our world. Watch it. Watch it. That's our world. You know, I always remember one of my elders, man, with such wisdom, and he said this. And I said, well, what's up with the world, man? Like, it's just all they do is just they're spending their time. And he's like, Robbie, they will entertain themselves literally to death. As long as they're entertained, just let me escape the next moment. Let me just get by and pretend death isn't coming, and I'll be okay. And they literally do that to their grave in eternal destruction. God, not us, we pray. He says, modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christian who can appreciate or experience the life in the Spirit. If you live by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, having the power of the Spirit within our lives. If you're not focused on the Lord, this isn't going to happen within. The words, be still and know that I am God, mean next to nothing to the self-confident, bustling worshiper in the middle period of the 20th century. He wrote this 65 years ago. Think about that. And then he ends with this, and I really appreciate your attention on this. The loss, this loss of the concept of majesty has come just when the forces of religion are making dramatic gains and the churches are more prosperous than at any time within the past several hundred years. Isn't that true? In the last 50, 60 years, the reality of the prosperity in terms of church and buildings and even in some cases size of congregations and mega churches and all this kind of stuff and the advancement, all the bells and whistles, in some ways it's never been greater and never been more. But with such wisdom, he says this, but the alarming thing is that our gains are mostly external and our losses are wholly internal. Heart, 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 right? If you're gaining on the outside but losing on the inside in the heart, since it is the quality of our religion that is affected by internal conditions, if you don't have the heart in the pursuit of God, you're not pursuing anything of God. So it can be external. This is why I get the danger. This building is external. It's a tool. If the heart doesn't remain pure before Christ, this all means nothing in the end. Trust me, I know from where I pastor right now, the building we're a part of, the church that I lead. I'm not speaking from inexperience. I'm speaking from total experience of 15 years of it. And he says this. It may be, if it's, if it's external and non-eternal, it may be that our supposed gains are but losses spread over a wider field. See what he's saying there? It's like all the, all the seeming boasting and bragging of Christendom in certain ways, 
It might just be it's been lost, but we just kind of spread it over a wider area. In the reality, nothing really has taken root of hearts genuinely going for the Lord. See, so all that to say this. Why, why is this so critical? Isaiah 66, verse 1, and the first part of verse 2. It's this. And this is the word for you right now. Of course, this is the word for me. No people, pastor, church leaders, church, or movement will ever rise higher than their idea of God. No people, church, pastor, leadership, church, or movement will ever rise higher than their idea of God. See, this is where we start because this is where God starts. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What is this that you will build for me? God says, I am the Lord. This, again, is where blessing is found in the fear of him. Conviction number one. There's only one God. Leads us to conviction number two. Is this. And there's only one that God will look to. There's only one that God will look to. See, where do you get that? Second half of verse two. Ready? It's found in the phrase this. But, but. So the contrast. The con- Notice the significance. The contrast of the holiness of God. And now he drops into, but here's whom I bless. This is now the person I look to. This is the one to whom I will look. He was humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The NIV says, this is the one to whom I will esteem. Another translation says, this is the one to whom I will bless. Now, now this, this phrase, this, but this is the one to whom I will look. We've got to stop there for a second because this has to grab our attention, okay? If I'm back home right now preaching in Oakville, I'm doing this. The door's for you, it's wisdom, okay? Or on this, hey, the phone's for you, it's wisdom. If only phones still look like this, eh? Hey, hey, hey. Now it's like this, right? Hey, what's up, right? But listen, it is, the door or the phone is for you, it's wisdom. Why do you say that? I say that, okay. God says, but, 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 this is the one to whom I will look. Okay, wait, 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 time out, time out, pause everything. Whatever follows in this moment, God is promising, this is the person I esteem, I bless, my gaze is set upon. You know, if I'm a follower of Jesus Christ right now, and God's about to detail the man or woman that he's going to bless and fill, I'm sitting up straight, man. I'm not sleeping. I got pad open, pen, ready to go, writing down notes. Tell me, God, what is it? What is it? What is it? Because whatever comes will change your life, change your family, change your church. That's how important this is. This is when the Lord looks down upon us in this moment right now, a word for this church, loved ones, Harvest Mississauga, and says, I look at this kind of church. My gaze is upon this type of family, this type of people. And he says three specific character traits of blessing. We're going to break them down one at a time. This is the one God looks to. Number one is this, the humble. The Lord looks to the humble. See that word humble there? He who is humble, that word means um, poor or afflicted. It often refers to an oppressed person. Now, the word carries the meaning of someone who is not proud or arrogant in spirit. Here's the key. The humble realize their dependence upon God. The humble know they are unworthy. They're unworthy to come in God's presence. So when they do, they owe everything to him. 
Isn't it so interesting? You can say, well, this is the Old Testament and stuff. Well, how do we know? Well, let's, go to the, let's go to the New Testament then. Let's go for a parallel verse and interpret, interpret Scripture with Scripture. The greatest sermon ever given. What is it? What's the greatest sermon ever given? I promise you it's not this one today. Okay? The greatest sermon ever given is the Sermon on the Mount. Yes. Given by Jesus. Yes. Good. Well done. Well done. Okay? In the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount... Jesus sets the tone for all the exhortation to come, and he starts with character. In fact, the very first beatitude is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Think of what he's saying there. Blessed, happy, fulfilled, joy-saturated are the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit means you know you're spiritually bankrupt. You know you have nothing to offer. I mean, you know you are depraved in of yourself. And Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You're just like, what? Where's that coming from? Here's why Jesus begins the greatest sermon ever with this exhortation. Because Jesus knows this. You can have all the giftedness and all the competency in the world. If you don't have character, you're not going very far with the Lord. Men, men, listen right now. Your character defines you. Why do I isolate men? Your leadership over the lives that God has entrusted to you that will speak the greatest volumes ever. Women, your character. God authenticates you through your character more than what you do and accomplish and all the wisdom you might think you have and all the intellectual ability. Your character carries on the farthest. I just did two funerals again this past week. Two funerals. What is said at the end of the day? Character, 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 character. Always speaks the loudest. Especially to the heart of God. But this is the one to whom I will look. He or she who is humble. So understand this. Your character is your spiritual resume. Hey, you, you want to come up here? Maybe you're new to the church. And by the way, I see a lot of kind of former Oakville people. I'm so glad you're here. Miss you. Miss you. I'm glad you're here. It's so great. Eh? You might come up here and say, I want to serve on the worship team. And you're like, oh, I got a great voice and I got some leadership. I can do this. I can do that. If you're in my church, man, I'm like, you bet you got a heart. Because I could care less, man. You can go win the TV show, whatever it is, and win the best you know, award and the, win an Oscar, whatever the Grammy stuff it is. But you don't have a heart for Jesus Christ. I'm just, I'm just personally not interested. Because in the end of the day, that's not going to do anything. People who are here to serve the Lord, to love the Lord, to exalt the Lord truly and not prop up themselves. Listen, listen, do the whole church a favor. Don't ever step up here when it's really about you. And if you sense that's happening, repent as fast as you can. Get in the right place with the Lord. Even serving in small groups or here, whatever, just beginning in. The heart, the heart, the heart. Character comes before competency. How do we know this is so important to the Lord? What's the greatest virtue taught by precept or example in the New Testament? It is love. That should be obvious. Love. The greatest of these is love. You know what the second virtue in the New Testament taught? Second most by precept or example is humility. Love 50 times, humility 40 times. You combine humility and love into one package, that is a powerful individual blessed by the Lord and will be used of the Lord. Love and humility. This is whom the Lord looks to. Here's a quote, a quote by Andrew Murray on the screen here. On this note, listen to this. 
you read it with me here. It says, humility is the mother virtue, your very first duty before God. Look what he says here. The one perpetual safeguard of the soul. There's so much safety in humility because God promises to give grace to you. Notice, and set your heart upon it as the source of all blessing. Why? Because this is the one to whom the Lord looks to. Every day, you and I have several choices we will make between pride and humility. Door number one is the door of humility. Every time you walk through the door of humility, loved ones, you will win. On some ways, you will be blessed. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Door number two is pride. Every time you choose to walk through the door of pride, you are guaranteed in some way to lose. Okay? Let's apply it to your marriage today. When you, even when the service ends, when you go home today, men and women married, you will have the opportunity to serve your spouse or serve yourself. You will say, I want to do that. I want to do what I want to do. I want to do this. I want to be able to choose this. I want you to do it. I want you to listen to me. I'm not going to hear you speak. I'm not going to serve you. I'm just like, Every time you choose to serve yourself in your marriage, you lose in some way or another. Every time you choose the door of humility, I know it's hard. Trust me, I've been married for 18 years. Every time you choose the door of humility, though, you win. This is the one to whom the Lord looks to. This is the one to whom the Lord esteems or blesses. Notice what happens next. God promises to look now to the broken. To the broken. This is so powerful to me. Look at verse 2. He was humble and contrite in spirit. Okay? The adjective contrite is used only three times in the Old Testament. And literally it means crippled of feet. But the root of contrite means he smote or he struck. So therefore, contrite is this. Contrite is you've been struck, you're crippled, and you know you need help. This is the one to whom the Lord is looking to. Isn't that something? The one who is busted up and broken and desperate for help, this is whom God will work within. I mean, how antithetical is that notion within our society? Within our hearts as humans. That's why I believe the greatest turning point in the Apostle Peter's life was his denial of Jesus. Remember the Apostle Peter, Jesus says, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Peter's like, no way, that's not happening, no way. I'll die for you even, Jesus. Jesus is like, all right, we'll see. The day comes and a servant girl comes, a servant girl comes up to Peter and says, Aaron, don't you know Jesus? And he's like, no, no, I don't know. And he goes on, he goes on, and he emphatically says, I never knew the guy. And what happens was on the time when, when Peter denies Jesus, Luke's gospel is amazing. You can read it today. I really encourage you to do it. Luke's gospel describes this moment. Jesus is in the courtyard, wherever he is, and he's been arrested. He's being taken away. The rooster crows after Peter denies. And the text says that Jesus turns at that moment, at the rooster crows, turns and looks Peter in the eye. Peter is over here or whatever. And at the moment, I'll die for you, Jesus. And he denies him for the third time outright. And he turns and his eyes lock upon Jesus. I mean, just, just imagine that moment. And the text says, and Jesus was led away and Peter went out and wept bitterly. How broken was Peter then? How devastated was Peter? How lonely was Friday how much anguish did Peter suffer through? What about Saturday? Peter didn't know Sunday was coming. Peter didn't know what was going to happen. He thought that may be the last time I ever set my eyes 
upon my Savior or say words about Christ while he was still alive. Can you imagine the personal devastation of Peter Friday night, Saturday? What was happening in his life? Did he sleep like a minute? Did he just lie awake and just, and just contemplate all the, the worst things? Absolute devastation. And one Sunday morning, the news of Jesus being raised, Peter runs as fast as he can. And I love John 21. They're fishing in the boat, and Jesus appears on the shoreline. And Jesus says, hey, put your net on the other side. And they do, and they catch a whole bunch of fish. And Peter then recognizes, wait, that's Jesus. What does Peter do? He flails himself in the water and swims as fast as he can to the shore, even before the boat. And he gets there and he runs up to Jesus. Can you imagine Peter's anticipation? Can you imagine the exhilaration of restoration? Can you imagine the delight in the grace of God? Can you imagine the renewal of mind? Can you imagine the humility that was setting in from Peter's humiliation before? Can you only imagine what Peter's heart was beating and feeling and his mind was thinking as he is restored again to his Savior who is dead but is now alive. And in that moment, Jesus comes up to Peter and asks Peter now from his brokenness, from his devastation, from his restoration and asks him one question again repeatedly. Remember what he says? He says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? See, Jesus is not saying, Peter, Show me all your competency, right? Do you love me? I suggest to you from that moment on, Peter is never the same again. God used his utter devastation and brokenness to produce in him a level of fruitfulness that was rare among the church's history. Peter became one of the most effective leaders of the church, standing up at Pentecost, filled with the Holy Spirit, leading thousands to be saved in Christ and leading the church forward from that. He had bad days, he had good days. Peter, though, Peter would never be the same again because God uses and dwells within the broken. The contrite in spirit. Peter was crippled. He was, he was struck and crippled and God would use it to create Peter within Peter, incredible glory for himself. That's why when Tozer says, and he says it so aptly, he says, it is doubtful whether God can use a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Or with great spiritual privilege comes great pain. And I believe there, there are no exceptions. If, you, if you're sitting here today and you think you, you'll be the first man or woman to kind of coast on to Jesus and be used in a great way without having to go through anything, I mean, think again. You will not be the only exception in history. If we want to be used of the Lord, it always comes at a cost. It's the way God works. God knows we don't. He is looking to work within those who are broken in fact, he's looking for us to be a movement. And this is, what, this is what kind of blows me away from Isaiah 66 and the rest of Scripture. He's looking for a church of crippled people. I'm like, really? Again, that's so opposite of what we think naturally, intuitively, of crippled people, broken people. You know how people say this? I heard this sort of line a lot. Say, oh, Christianity? Christianity's a crutch. You know what I mean? People say that. It's a crutch. Well, you don't, you're not strong enough, so you need to rely on that. for. I say, Christianity's not a crutch. It's way worse than that. Christianity is like a wheelchair. Christianity is the ICU, man. Christianity, in reality, we're corpses. 
We are absolutely spiritually dead apart from Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, he comes and revives us and redeems us and restores us and reconciles us and puts his Holy Spirit in us. And we become alive and we're new creations. We're able to breathe and see and really for the first time ever. Amen. That's a Christianity. It's not a crutch. It's so much worse. But so great. Dead corpses that need to be revived by the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's looking for those. He's looking for those who know they're broken. I can speak to you today. I don't know who's here right now. The Lord does. You know how many people, they, 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 they resist the working of God in their lives because they're too proud to admit how much they need him. What man here today, I just described you. So proud, I got it together. I'm gonna and 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 the, the gaze of the Lord is literally looking over you because you say, I don't need you, God. I'm not talking about the Christianese or cliches you can spout out. I'm talking about the real life you're living. Women? What women here today? And if truth be told, man, you are so concerned about things of self. So concerned about your appearance, what people think of you, your competencies in the world. So concerned about portraying a certain image. And what God is really looking for is you to be broken. Because this is the one to whom he will look. What teenagers here right now? And if truth be told, man, you are one arrogant individual. You have been living for self your entire life. You think the world revolves around you. The reason I can say that, because I was one of them, okay? I'm not judging you. I'm kind of joining you. I spent 22 years thinking, man, I got this whole thing figured out until the Lord devastated me. And in that moment, I bottomed out of everything I thought that could fulfill me and finally looked up, finally, for the first time in my life, looked from someone beyond myself. And my eyes were fixed on Jesus. My life would never be the same again. It has been the hardest journey and the best possible journey I could ever imagine. And one day soon, Jesus Christ is going to return. And then in that moment, the car doesn't matter, the house doesn't matter, the clothes don't matter, the the worldly resume doesn't matter. None of that matters. All that matters, I'm a child of God and Jesus Christ has come for me. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life in the the arrogance of hard-heartedness and pride and miss the opportunity to be broken now to live forever then. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ invites you to life today by recognizing that we are to be a crippled people who are healed by Jesus Christ. So this is the one to whom I will look. He was humble, contrite in spirit, and notice thirdly, and trembles at my word. So we'll call this the reverend. The reverend. God looks to the reverend. Those who tremble at my word. What is this? It's the fear of the Lord. Even as you hear the word today, there's a receptivity. There's a sober-mindedness. You believe what you're reading. You want to act upon it, trembling at the word of God. You are reverent toward him. The Lord will look to this person, to this pastor, to this individual, to this type of leader, to the church again to the people who tremble at his word. So I wonder today as you 
Go through Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2, and the Holy Spirit kind of speaks to us right now as we look upon Harvest Mississauga and, and the future. May he, may he find a people that are humble, broken, and reverent. Because I, I'm just telling you, I don't know what else is going to happen, but I, just, I like your chances a lot. The Lord will move and fill. It'll be a hard journey. It'll be filled. It has been filled with trials and different forms of suffering and difficulty. And it will be until Jesus comes. Like, that's promised. But it will be filled with God's favor and God's blessing and God's grace and God's strength and God's mercy and God's delight and God's love. It'll be filled with that. And it'll be so worth it. So I want to speak to you as individually, as individually we make up the church today. Where are you at today? What needs to change in you today? What sin needs to be confessed? Let's be honest. Has your heart been proud? Have you been proud? Have you been hard-hearted, resisting the, the leading of brokenness? Have you been indifferent? You're like, ah, I don't even care. Have you been irreverent? Has there been a fear of man, not the fear of the Lord? Has there been a callousness on upon your heart you can take these things i'm thinking like if you want to get to the right place in the right direction of a message like this and as a church like this what a better way to do that than responding with humility with the lord's supper i'm going to ask you to be still right now i'm not going to ask you to fidget around too much i'm just going to ask you to listen right here what would be better than for us to hold the symbols of the bread and the juice and to say lord jesus christ you were broken for me that I may be broken before you. You humbled yourself to the point of death, even death on a cross, that I right now, Lord, want to renew my humility before you. You hold the symbols of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. You fear the Lord so much, Lord Jesus Christ. You were so obedient to your Father's commands that that is because I can sit here now and be alive because of what you have done. You can take this time to examine yourself to remember, to reflect, and to say, Lord, I want to be a man or woman whom you look to. I give you my life again. I, I commit my future to you in this church. May you bless it. You can use this opportunity right now in the reverence of this moment that it may be done. That's beautiful. And that's powerful. So as the servers come forward getting ready to serve, let's just pray right now. Let's just bow our heads. Let's just take this moment for what it is, a one of reverence, and one of sincerity. And let's ask God to do a work. God, I do pray that you are working right now in man and woman and child. I pray you are revealing sin in all of our lives. I pray that we would repent of that sin, but then know that the grace, the inexhaustible grace of God available to us in this moment because Jesus died for every sin, past, present, future. Help us, Lord, as we hold the symbols of your body and your blood to be humbled at that fact right there. Use this church. Move in this church. Bless this church. Guide this church, God. Purify this church, even today. Yes, Lord, may it be so. We pray this in the name of Jesus.